For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, if it's completely safe, with the latest readout video from our free weekly Wednesday wake-up email newsletter to which it is safe to subscribe, as it is safe to send us a contribution to help us produce the newsletter and these videos. This obsession with safety arises because of the famous, or infamous, precautionary principle. It used to be big among environmentalists back when they could use it to spike anything they didn't like, especially because the definition was so slippery and uh, adaptable. In one version, the precautionary principle was uncontroversial but useless, for instance in the Rio Declaration of 1992, where it's defined as, quote, where there are threats of serious or irreversible damage, lack of full scientific certainty shall not be used as a reason for postponing cost-effective measures to prevent environmental degradation, end quote. But in other versions, it came to mean don't do anything unless you're sure it's totally safe, which, as was pointed out at the time, would have prevented the invention of electricity or even of fire. And this hoary old precautionary principle is back in our minds now because of the headline, quote, could global warming be reversed by refreezing the polar regions, end quote? To which we answer, could we maybe have a bit of precaution here? What sane person thinks that the record of humanity, on climate or more generally, justifies plunging into experiments to alter the entire ecosystem without any idea at all whether it's safe? Heck yeah, I reflect sunlight back into space. What could go wrong? And that is the view taken by a surprising number of climate alarmists who otherwise regard human interference with the environment as wildly reckless and almost invariably bad. Then you produce some idea that has nemesis jostling hubris to get on stage and geoengineering the whole planet, and they're all like, yeah, sure, whatever, man. On the other hand, we were surprised and gratified that despite our endless carping about how all climate news is bad, we found a National Geographic headline, quote, climate change could make French wine taste better, end quote. Even if they add an obligatory ominous for now. No, really, they actually admit that plants prefer warm weather. Next, they'll be letting on that CO2 is good for our green buddies as well, including the ones with the grapes. Grudgingly, no doubt, since the deck on that piece reads, quote, Bordeaux's grapes will benefit from warmer, drier summers. But if extreme heat leads to droughts, this top wine producer's future may be at risk, end quote. Yeah, if, maybe, blah, blah, blah. But hey, they admit that for now, warming is good and the crops are flourishing, and we'll drink to that. We might also drink because of yet more climate conferencing. Quote, scientists, officials, and leaders will convene an Atautahi Christchurch in 2025 to help prepare countries, cities, and communities for the effects of climate change, end quote. Because you can never meet too often to talk endlessly in posh locales. But how are you all getting to New Zealand? Oh, by carbon-spewing jet airplane. Gosh. We also bring you a piece of typical green economics. A headline in the Hill Times says, quote, Climate crisis inaction isn't worth the cost. The impact of warming on today's financial architecture could make the 2008 financial collapse look like child's play, end quote. Yeah, could, might. If one thing we don't know about causes another thing we also don't know about, it could be huge. Or not. And we also note in the newsletter that Canada's Captain Carbon is at it again. A story about the Canadian government replacing its aging giant jets that fly our Prime Minister about the globe reveals that, quote, 
Publicly available data from online flight trackers list Can Force One taking to the skies 42 times between the time the House rose for the summer on June 22nd and the beginning of the fall sitting on September 18th, logging 87,821 kilometers, end quote. 42, we cry in horror, twice round the world. Well, I guess we must all make sacrifices. How is the food on board, by the way? Or aren't we ordinary citizens allowed to know that kind of thing? Oh, and over at Net Zero Watch, David Whitehouse gives an interesting look at some new research on the dreaded melting of European glaciers in the form of temperature reconstructions over some 2,500 years for the Pyrenees using speleotherms. And what we want to draw your attention to, apart from it being real science and neither the authors nor Whitehouse engaging in cherry-picking, and also that a speleotherm is any one of those formations where water flowing in caves deposits minerals, stalagmites, stalactites, and also things with names like curtains and straws. But what we want to draw your attention to as well is the amount and particularly the suddenness of temperature change in the past. People often point to the rapid temperature increase in the late 20th century and say, well, that's unprecedented, must be man-made. But actually, these researchers' charts show not just cycles, including the late lamented medieval warm period, and a Roman warm period far warmer than today, at least on what is now the French-Spanish border, but also dramatic surges and drops within the cycles, often over mere decades. And now, a word from our sponsor. And yes, again, that's you. All the people out there who are already backing our work, and all the people who are subscribing, more than 84,000 of you on YouTube alone, where we've had almost 10 million views. But we need to keep up the momentum, and that's why I interrupt to pass the hat to those of you who aren't already backers and say please make a pledge, one time or monthly, $3, $5, $10, whatever you can afford so we can continue to push back against the climate cult and win this battle. And now, back to me. Now, it's time to play some climate buzzword bingo. Has anyone got according to a new study on their card? Oh, you all do. How about tipping point? Yeah, the entire room again? Dang. Uh, what about drought? Crop failure? Must act now? Oh dear, we're all winners, and the prize is apocalypse in the Amazon. Because, quote, the South American monsoon, which determines the climate of much of the continent, is being pushed toward a critical destabilization point, according to a study that links regional rainfall to Amazon deforestation and global heating. The authors of the report said they found their results shocking and urged policymakers to act with urgency to forestall, drumroll please, a tipping point, end quote. And, at the risk of being spoil sports, we have to ask, what computer model are you using? that projects all these things, but says that anything we do now, anything at all, could possibly prevent it. Or are you just playing games? Meanwhile, Heatmap reports an experiment that reveals the evil bigotry structurally incorporated into American life. It appears that poor non-whites live in hotter, more urban parts of town, whereas, quote, richer neighborhoods tend to be lusher, end quote. And while it's not really news that rich people have nicer homes, the item manages to miss completely the thing that it puts right up front. Quote, study after study has shown that cities are noticeably hotter than surrounding rural areas. This is called the urban heat island effect, end quote. Right. And since the temperature measurements that claim to show global warming depend excessively on readings taken in cities, uh, never mind. World ends, women and minorities, hardest hit. 
Also, we've had plenty to say here at CDN about the elusive number known as ECS. That's Equilibrium Climate Sensitivity. If it's a new topic for you, please have a look at our backgrounder video from 2020, because ECS is a vital concept in climate science. It refers to the absolute amount of warming in degrees that you'd expect if you doubled the relative amount of CO2 in the atmosphere once the climate system is fully adjusted. And for many years, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change argued that the Earth's ECS is between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees Celsius, with the best estimate around 3 degrees. Even so, leading economic models have shown that if ECS is 3, then even though some emissions eventually cause some harm, trying to stop warming would be far costlier than just living with it. Meanwhile, if ECS is closer to 2 degrees Celsius, economists have shown that CO2 doesn't cause any net economic harm and may even be a net benefit, so all climate policies, drastic or even modest, are a deadweight loss. They're not just bad on balance. Now, modern climate computer models have ECS values that range from a low of 1.8 to a high of 5.6 degrees Celsius, so the settled science doesn't even know if CO2 is a problem. But what if we ignore the models and estimate ECS based on the past 150 years of real-world data? That thing again. Well, as we'll show over the coming weeks, the numbers keep coming back around 2 degrees Celsius or even less, including the one we let off with this week, a study from 2000 that placed it at 1.6 degrees Celsius. In the newsletter, we also say RIP Arctic Ice, as in rip-roaring or at least coming back as it always does, and lately faster than expected. Ron Klutz's Science Matters website shows satellite-based measurements of the September minimum sea ice volume going back to 2007, forecasts for this year's ice melt from 29 modeling groups in the Sea Ice Prediction Network, and the monthly sea ice extent data for this year. On average, over the past 17 years, the summer months lead to a September sea ice extent of about 4.6 million square kilometers, and the models predicted that the ice cover this year would be somewhere between 2.9 and 5.5 million square kilometers, which, frankly, is about as useful as throwing a dart at an iceberg. In fact, it came in slightly below average, at around 4.4 million square kilometers, which is above 2019 and 2020, but below 2021 and 2022. However, since the start of October, the ice has been coming back with a vengeance. Finally, from the CO2Science.org archive, and, to practice our pronunciation of Latin species names, a study on mid- and high-latitude crustose coralline algae, a long-lived organism suitable for recording climate changes. Apparently, Clathromorphum compactum, and thank goodness it wasn't in Norwegian, in the Newfoundland area, suggests that the warming in the 1920s and 1930s was... wait for it larger than that of the 1990s. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know that natural variability in Latin is naturalis varietatem, and I hope it's safe to be pedantic here at the end of the video.